This is Bonjour Chai, the You Can't Spell Messianism Without Mess edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we explore the Chabadification of Judaism. If you've ever wondered why it seems like there are more Chabad houses than Starbucks in Canadian cities, then this is the episode for you. We talk to sociologist Samuel Heilman about the roots of this phenomenon and what it means for the future of Canadian Jewry. Plus, Phoebe and I discuss tidiness, piles of books, and Marie Kondo. Phoebe, Phoebe, I'm going to guess that uh, you don't know much about hockey. Uh, <laughs> what a way to begin. Um, I know what it is, I think. Um, it's the one where people are on a, a horse and they're... Oh, no, that's polo. No, tell me, what what is a hockey? Um, hockey hockey is uh, is Canada one of Canada's national uh, sports. It's uh, the, I, think, I believe the official Canadian sport is lacrosse, but that's a different discussion. Um, but hockey is our national, uh, you know, yes. it's the I, game I do that actually we are know, known I know, yes. I know more about hockey know, than you might I think. Um, I was going to say uh, a good friend of mine in high school actually founded our high school's ice hockey team, and uh, we went to go, like, watch them perform or whatever hockey is a great canadian uh, hockey player actually uh passed away this week i don't know if you heard about that uh, bobby hull I did uh, he, not was, know. he was known as the golden jet and uh i had a you know there is a jewish connection and that i actually had a personal connection to him uh he was an upstairs neighbor of mine when we were living in chicago oh. right so it's like kind of like a legend imagine if like i don't know stephen sondheim was like mm-hmm. living upstairs from you and you just sort of had him over for shabbat every time every once in a while mm-hmm. um and he used to come over for shabbat dinner and People used to ask me all the time and like there's been discussion over the past week about his apparent anti-Semitism and what like is going on with this. Um, And I got to tell you, so there's this like amazing moment that I had with Bobby Hull uh, that was only funny um, because the line itself that he whatever he told me in this story was funny if you're Canadian, but even funnier if you know that he shamelessly ripped it off from somebody else. So I'm just going to tell you this story. Um, the only thing you need to know about this is that um, there's a famous hockey player also named Daryl Sittler. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Bobby Hall is at our house one Friday night. Um, most everybody has gone because I used to invite all these Canadians over for Shabbat dinner whenever he was over because like, hey, why not? And um he drank a lot of wine. He was always a big wine drinker. He was always regaling people with all sorts of tales of all sorts of stuff. Everybody was gone from the table. My wife was asleep. I was, it was just like me and him were sitting and I'm looking at him and I'm like, here's my chance to ask him, Bobby, I got to ask you, right? These famous stories of you with this Russian journalist in the nineties, right? Apparently he was, there was an article that was uh, printed and he was quoted as saying that Hitler was right. He just went a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. Right. Or Hitler had some good ideas. He just went a little bit too far. Um, and he, I said, come on, you're clearly not an anti-Semite. You're at my house. You're at Shabbat dinner. You tell me you have friends that are Jewish. I know that's not a thing, but, you know, whatever. Let's not go there. Um, but we're friends. Like, what's what's going on? And he looks at me and I look at him and he looks at me. And he goes, Abby, I was misquoted. I said, Sittler. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, which I thought was really funny at the time. And then I find out that he stole that from Rick Mercer, who had used that literal line, right, on This Hour Has 22 Minutes, which is like the Canadian equivalent of like a, the news satire show, which has been long mm-hmm. running. Um, and he just heard this line, I guess. I don't know what it was. And he just took it and turned it into his line. And I love that fact. And so uh, I will always uh, remember Bobby Hull and the... Uh, you know, 
times he used to regale us with stories and he used to come over to our Shabbat table for Shabbat dinner. Um, that's my, um, my, my moment of the week that I was thinking about. Um, what's been happening with you? Uh, nothing quite that dramatic. <laughs> I'm wondering now uh, whether it's going to transpire that Kanye West all this time was actually saying something other than what we think. And somebody's going to come out of the woodwork and discover that it actually is fine all along. And he's, he's actually well, well, lovely. I'm curious about what the how he could have actually been misquoted, like what the misquoted. Yeah, no, could I, I, I don't. I think it would be way too, um, way too involved. It, it was just being a little silly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the main thing here is that it's totally freezing. But um, back in New York City, where I'm from, apparently there has not been snow for an extremely long time, and people are very upset about it. So um, I could merely offer them some of our snow. We have a little extra. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, but yeah, we got a great show lined up today. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Chabad. We're going to talk about messiness. Um, let's get to our interview with uh, Samuel Heimland right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So uh, back in 1990, I don't even think the most astute watchers of Jewish culture would have thought that one of the major forces shaping Judaism in the 21st century would be Chabad. They actively compete in the marketplace of Jewish ideas and identities. With their enormous menorahs and sidewalk stalls, they are by far the most prominent Jews in the public square. They're a major force on college campuses, and they outcompete Jewish movements in the digital sphere by leaps and bounds. How did they get so ubiquitous? Why is this small sect of Hasidim succeeding where every other incumbent, the Jewish denomination seemingly much more in line with the sensibilities of the majority of Jews, are losing so much ground? According to the 2020 Pew Survey of American Jews, 75% of those involved with Chabad do not even identify as Orthodox Jews. How can a movement with such a yawning gap between its leaders and followers be sustainable? And lastly, are there really as many Chabad houses as there are Starbuckses? Well, for this last question, I can answer that per capita, there are. I ran the numbers, and there are as many Chabad houses for every Jew in Canada as there are Starbucks for every Canadian. For all the other answers about this topic, we turn to Samuel Heilman. Dr. Heilman is a professor of sociology at Queen's College in New York. He is the author of Defenders of the Faith Inside Ultra-Orthodox Jewry and The Rebbe, The Life and Afterlife of Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and he joins us from Jerusalem. Dr. Heilman, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you, and... Uh, so uh, to answer your question uh, briefly, um, I don't know what you mean by succeeding, because from the point of view of uh, Hasidism, they are certainly not the biggest Hasidic sect. Other Hasidic sects are succeeding way beyond in, in growing their numbers, way beyond Chabad. Uh, are they succeeding in uh, being well-known? Yes. Are they succeeding in creating an outreach program? Yes, although that's with a, a caveat, how, how, how successful is that outreach? And of course, uh, they're not necessarily growing the number of Chabad Hasidim because anyone who's been to one of those Chabad houses that are more ubiquitous than Starbucks knows that most of the people inside the Chabad house are neither Hasidic 
nor probably orthodox, nor likely to become either one. And finally, by their own criteria, their uh, reason for the outreach is to bring about the Messiah. I would say that we are further from the Messiah's arrival today than we were when they started their outreach, at least if we judge by what's going on in the Jewish world. So, yeah, they've succeeded. They're very positive image and uh, they're very well known, um, at least in a shallow way. But uh, the debate is still out there about what the nature of this, I mean, this is. The, the, I guess the, 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 the lens that we had been looking at this was mainly about market share and about how the community, I feel, uh, and in discussions with others, feel that like, Essentially, as a community, we have given over so much of our uh, religious life to Chabad, right? How, how often does a federation decide to do something uh, as a Jewish event and for the religious portion of it, just hand it over to the Chabad because Chabad is willing to do it. They're willing to go in for free and just run the event. And we, as a community, have decided to just give up and sort of say, yeah, you want to do it? Go ahead. And I think that it's not it's not it's not great for the diversity of the community. And um, I think that we are um, losing a lot. And I think that that to me was the, the the beginning of where I started asking this question and thinking about it for for today's show. Well, these these are really great questions, and and the the answer the short answer again, and we're speaking only telegraphically here because of time constraints. But the short answer is because there aren't people within the organized Jewish community who are really ready to do what Chabad does at the level that Chabad does it. For Chabad, it's a calling. It's a religious mission. For many of the others, it doesn't have that same push to it. And and in addition to which, the fact is that uh, with Chabad, they have a completely different model. If you take the typical synagogue, the rabbi or the people in that synagogue say, well, you know, we're interested in our members. Become a member of our community and we'll give you all of these services. Chabad does it in the opposite. It says, we're going to give you all of these things for free. But, and I, I call this the godfather model, there's going to be a time when we're going to ask a favor of you. Right now we're doing it for free. But the time is going to come when you're our friend, and we're going to need something from you. We're going to need a donation. We're going to need help. We're going to need all kinds of input, and you're going to do it for me. And that is the contract that, uh, that Chabad does. Finally, Chabad is great when there's no other institution, when no one else wants to do it, when all of those other people are busy doing other things in the Jewish or in the course of their lives. But Chabad also comes in in places that already have institutions. And when they do that, they underprice their efforts. And often they put those other institutions out of business. Uh, their nurseries are free, it seems, or cheaper. Uh, their shul doesn't require a membership. So um, they're not always a, a force for good when there's somebody else in the market. Then they're like the dollar store that moves in next to the uh, more expensive boutique uh, or drugstore and puts them out of business. I actually would 
say that it's not so much the godfather model. My model is more the technology model, the way that I have always viewed Chabad. And I'm curious what you think about this in that, you know, in the, in the world of uh, uh, the online world or in the world of technology, they often say that if uh, you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Um, in that we care about the person's person. And in the Chabad world, and this goes into the theology of it and the messianism, um, they want your mitzvahs, they want your good deeds, they want, like you said, to bring about the Messiah. And I don't think that people are often aware of what makes Chabad so unique um, amongst other Hasidim in this, in this way. And I was wondering if you can, first of all, comment on that and then just explain what, uh, what makes Chabad different and unique amongst all the others and uh, what their theology is in this way. Well, so the, the first and most obvious uniqueness is that they've decided the original model of a shaliach, as I describe it in my more recent book, Who Will Lead Us, uh, in the chapter on Chabad, uh, the most, the original version of a shaliach is somebody that goes from the Rebbe to his Hasidim and passes messages and lessons on from the Rebbe to those people who couldn't, weren't fortunate enough or weren't able to get to his tish, weren't able to come to his court. But what Chabad did is they changed the whole model. They said, we're not going to go to other Hasidim. We tried that and they're not interested in us. In fact, the other Hasidim, they're growing on their own, in their own courts. Uh, we're not the largest one. What we're going to do is we're going to go to a market no, no one else ever touched. We're going to go to the outreach market. We're going to go to people who are not Hasidim and try to pass the message of our Rebbe. And that, of course, is a, uh, is a market that is vast. And the Rebbe himself, I'm talking about the seventh Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who picked up the idea that his predecessor, his father-in-law, just started near the end of his life, realized from his own life that you could be out on the periphery of the Jewish world as he was in Berlin and Paris before he was the Rebbe, although the Hasidim always think that he was destined to be that, but that's a whole other story. And he realized that you can be out on the periphery and then you can come back, and he did. And he also realized what the world out there was like, which people who had been totally in the Chabad world didn't know. Um, and finally, the question of the technology, well, they have a problem. The problem is that their Rebbe isn't present in the flesh anymore. He's only uh, in technology. He's only in cyberspace. He's only on film. And so what they've done is they've got him on reruns and packed in fact, uh, when, when the Rebbe was dying in the 90s, uh, the press would call me up and they'd say, Professor Harmon, what happens if the Rebbe dies? And I said, what? If the Rebbe dies? Everybody dies. The Rebbe is a human being. Of course he's going to die. There's no if about it. But then after they said, well, of course, yeah. well, what happens when the Rebbe dies? I said, and it's the only prediction I've ever made that actually turned out to be true. I said, he'll be on reruns. And he is on reruns. He's on reruns all the time. Uh, at, at his grave, there's a loop that has him uh, films on reruns all the time. There's every kind of site that Chabad has in cyberspace and YouTube everywhere. And uh, this enables the Rebbe to be wherever they want him to be, at any time they want him to be. And of course, um, technology is the best way to do that. 
So I'm going to sort of jump in with a question for um, sort of from, but also all the more so on behalf of uh, our listeners who are Jewish, but not extremely up on the nuances of Orthodox Judaism. So basically, what is Chabad and how is it distinct from Hasidic, Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox Judaism more generally? Because I'm, I'm thinking for a secular Jew who's familiar with being approached, you know, on the street, are you Jewish, all of this... I think the assumption would be this is something Hasidic Jews do sometimes and not that this is one specific subset. So I guess I want to kind of ask basically what makes Chabad distinct from other forms of um, observant Judaism, especially like what what would be beliefs also that um, would be different from other forms of very observant Judaism that your average secular Jew on the street of Toronto or New York or wherever uh, might not know. Okay, so uh, the short answer is I have two books on the subject. But people aren't going to do that. I, I, I wish they would. Uh, I'm an author myself. I'm an author I know, myself. I wish I, I, I wish that I know, worked like know, that. Know, but for uh, for our podcast listeners, well, well, maybe maybe th- okay, maybe this will will move them to do that. In any event, uh, the short answer is that um, Chabad, first of all, I think the, the man on the street doesn't necessarily even think of him as Hasidim. He thinks of yes. him as Orthodox Jews. They don't make a distinction between these guys and every other Orthodox Jew. Um, and he thinks of them probably as coming from another time, not realizing they're about as modern as, as he or she is. And um, he he also is sort of uh, tickled sometimes by the fact that they're willing and interested in talking to him and he can talk back to them mm-hmm. and he doesn't need to speak in Yiddish and he doesn't need to have any kind of knowledge and he, he can be as naive and, and, and uh, childlike in his knowledge of Judaism and they love that. Um, and um, I think that kind of openness and they're not asking at the beginning for sure. They're not asking for money. They're not asking for a long time commitment. What they're asking in most cases is for that person to do a public act of Jewish significance. Uh, what they would call it is mitzvahs, because the Chabad philosophy is not to make people Chabad Hasidim. That's they, they would love it, but it's not going to happen. They're in the business of collecting mitzvahs. And by collecting mitzvahs, if a, if a Jew, for example, on the street puts on tefillin, that's a way of publicly saying, I'm Jewish. I'm doing something that makes me stand out. If a, if a, uh, uh, a Jew goes into one of those mitzvah tanks, you know, or takes Shabbos candles or, or makes a blessing on a lulav and esrog, all of that is a sign that I'm doing a public act of Judaism. And they believe that they have this, this calculus, mm-hmm. that there's a cosmic balance of mitzvahs. Mm-hmm. And when enough Jews do enough mitzvahs, that tips the balance and the Messiah will come. Absolutely. So what I wanted to ask about also was just um, the sort of proselytizing angle, because I think now to jump out to not just the man on the street who's Jewish, but the whoever it is on the street whatever their gender or religion or background at all, you see somebody on the street doing something that looks religious, trying to get people to do it. That is not something very commonly associated with Jews, right? That's something, you know, you expect to see more from other religions. And I just wonder, um, 
both kind of how Chabad came to that approach and whether they feel, you know, I guess what you're saying is about um, to get the Messiah to come, but sort of uh, it's it's an aberration in Judaism, right, to have that approach. But also um, what happens just sort of if the person who approaches, uh, are they ever assumed to be trying to convert non-Jews? Because obviously they're not trying to do that. So that's, well, you, you started your question a while ago and you said, that's you, true. they meet you on the street and they say, excuse me, are mm-hmm. you Jewish? Because that's the first question. And if they, right. if you say no, true. they say, have a nice day. Now, they did have a campaign of seven for 70, uh, seven mitzvahs of uh, Noah, the Noahide commandments for the 70 nations. Didn't work all that well. And it really, uh, they, they came to the conclusion that it wasn't really what they wanted to do. They are proselytizing, but only among Jews, and that's very obvious. So, well, it, it's obvious. The minute I, they speak I, yeah, to you, yeah, the minute yeah. they speak to you, because their yeah, first question true. is, "Excuse me, are you Jewish?" But are there other groups proselytizing to Jews, like other groups of Jews proselytizing to Jews? Because I, I just mean, well, the there's the, the most obvious yeah. is the Jews for Jesus. They're not Jews, but they're well, right, but they're, but they're yeah. proselytizing yeah. to Jews, and of course, sure. okay. and Touché. and <laughs> and there are a Mormons proselytizing to Jews. I mean, no, no, but are there other groups of Jews proselytizing to Jews? Well, you have the well, whole outreach uh, yes, movement, or, or Sameach and Isha Torah, right. and, and that world, which is doing exactly. what what's referred to as the Kirov movement, the the outreach obvious, movement. Yeah, probably. or yeah. all you have to do is to come here to Jerusalem and go to the uh, Western Wall, and you'll find. You know, there are all kinds of people proselytizing here. Sure, but they're not making their way to like, you know, 72nd and Broadway. No, they're not. But uh, sometimes they're making... Pardon my American reference. They they are making it, they're making it uh, probably... To Bloor and Young. (laughs) No, no, to Bloor and Young. Or or they're making it to the executive uh, suite in one or another uh, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, business or uh, among lawyers or... uh, they're doing it on the telephone. There's a lot. The outreach business has, uh, among Jews, is uh, for every uh, Jew, there's probably three guys uh, or gals who want to do the uh, the outreach uh, from a particular organization and who are competing, including the the the, the most uh, well known, probably beyond uh, um, Chabad, which is Make Friday Night Shabbos, uh, which you can read about in a lot of the uh, Anglo-Jewish press. I want to really, I know that you just said that you you made one prediction about this in the past. Uh, I want to ask about another prediction, uh, but not so much for Chabad, but for the rest of the Jewish community. Because as I said, if I, one of the things that I've been noticing is this increased, as we call it, Chabadification of Judaism. What do you think might happen or will, uh, is likely to happen to the rest of the Jewish community when so much of Jewish practice, religious practice is associated with the uh, with Chabad Judaism when we stop thinking of other religious practices. Uh, so I, I think uh, if you want an example of what that could be like, go to Australia because Australia Australian Jewry has been Chabadified. Uh, I, I once walked on the street in Caulfield in Melbourne, and I saw this man. They're all dressed like Chabad Hasidim, and I asked him, "How long have you been a Chabad Hasid?" And he said, "I'm not a Chabad Hasid. I'm the Sephardic rabbi here." I said, well, why are you dressed like that? And he said, well, that's the way rabbis dress here. They took over a lot of the institutions in Australia very successfully. They want, and they've always said that, when when uh, 
the, uh, the seventh Rebbe's secretary, Rabbi Hodokov, was once asked by, I would say, a naive uh, uh, reporter, how many Chabad Hasidim are there? He answered, how many Jews are there? And the answer for that answer meant, for us, there isn't a distinction between Jews and Hasidim, and Chabad Hasidim. In fact, they don't tell the people who come to the Chabad house who don't know a great deal, we're going to teach you how to be a Chabad Hasid. They're, te- they're telling them, we're going to teach you how to be Jewish. It's a continuation of the theme that I talked about before. When there are other institutions in the community and Chabad comes in, they're not necessarily a positive force because they undermine those institutions by giving the product away free at the beginning, what looks like free. And that's the same thing here. So when they create these new Jews, they're Jews who think that the Chabad way is the way. So, But let me tell you, if you come here to Israel, you'll see there's a whole different way in which orthodoxy is spreading its power here, and it's by coercion, and it's through the government. So Chabad has real competition, but it's on this side of the pond, not in Canada. Dr. Samuel Hallman, thank you for coming on Bonjour Chai, and uh, uh, we welcome you coming anytime. Thank you so much. This was so interesting. So, Phoebe, you wrote a piece that came out this week in the Globe Mail, uh, getting into some of the schadenfreude of parents who have been uh, reading about Marie Kondo's recent change of heart regarding having a mess-free home. The backlash to this admission that life is difficult to maintain and often messy seems both mind-boggling and completely understandable. So for the three people who don't know who Marie Kondo is. (laughs) Absolutely. So Marie Kondo is the Japanese author and or best-selling, very, very best-selling author and organizing expert um, known for the life-changing magic of tidying up from 2010. And she's written other books since. And um, what she's known for is this tidying philosophy that you should go through all your stuff in your home and get rid of everything that doesn't, quote, spark joy. This kind of works if you're talking about like your own clothing or something like that. But obviously, you can't, you know, if your child has become very attached to some random piece of garbage, which happens, you can't just throw it out because it doesn't spark joy. It sparks joy for your child, whatever. Um, So this was never, yeah, this was never really compatible necessarily with life with small children. But I found the whole thing. I read this book when it came out in 2010. I did not have children in 2010. I found it very persuasive and tried to, uh, fold everything up the way she suggested and to go through my stuff to see what sparked joy. Um, but I guess, yeah, it, it's not for everybody. Okay, so that's who she is. What happened this week? Right. So she um, has, since initially writing this book, had uh, three children. So she now has three young children, the most recent born in 2021. And she is promoting a new book, which is not specifically about tidiness. And she, in the promotion for, of this new book, uh, she did some media webinar and virtual tea ceremony that the Washington Post attended, where she revealed that da, 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 she's messy now, or she rather her family is messy and she tolerates this because she sees it's her values are such that she values spending time with her family more than tidying, which is on the one hand, a noble thing and perfectly reasonable, but on the other, a little bit frustrating for people who she's been sort of telling for years that everybody can have a tidy home. And then people have looked around, seen all the toys piled up to who knows where and thought, 
not everybody with small children. I mean, I get the idea of tidiness. I think the tidiness is a value and interesting, and I don't like when things are messy. Um, but I also recognized, and I recognized it years ago, that like life gets in the way, and sometimes it's difficult. Um, and we don't always have cleaning staff to help us take care of everything and clean on our behalf, right? Uh, well, that's actually another part that I didn't have space to get into um, in the Globe and Mail piece, but I was thinking a lot about the difference between mess and filth. And how it's kind of charming to have a bit of mess, but like nobody actually wants filth. And to really stay on top of filth, you eat, you have a choice, especially with small children. You're either constantly cleaning, which is kind of where we are at, or you have like, you know, a staff constantly cleaning um, or you're, or it's just filth. Right. And yeah. So I don't know if Marie Kondo has embraced filth. I don't think so. Well, I would I would hope not. And I think that, yeah, I would that hope you're not. right. <laughs> um, <laughs> For hygiene purposes. It's a full-time job just doing that. And as she talked about it, she'd rather spend time with her children, right? And we have figured this out, we who have children um, and we who have older children and have moved through this all. And they, you know, what sparks joy for them, as you say, is like different from what sparks joy for adults. And they want stuff. They like stuff. And I mean, I personally like stuff also. I like tidiness, but I don't mind having lots of stuff, especially if it's so much stuff that sparks joy. Um, and so, you know, I've been thinking about this. I've been reflecting about it. I've never, I was never like a big acolyte of hers, you know, since the beginning. Um, but I just, you know, I find it, um, I don't know. I, I think the thing that struck me the most, I'll be honest, was uh, an article that Rebecca Onion wrote in Slate this week, where she talks about how um, she uh, Marie Kondo fell into the classic trap of writing about parenting advice when your children are too small to really understand. Um, I don't know if that resonates with you or, you know. Well, I, I didn't like, read this article, so uh, that's well, the first what, I'm hearing of it, so I don't you know could, if the article would. But. You should know that you both call out the wooden toy Montessori aesthetic as the utopian ideal of playrooms in both of your articles. Really? Well, it's a thing. You know, there's, there's somebody who... Um, Specifically by name, the wooden toy Montessori <laughs> thing. Okay, I have seen the Instagram of an acquaintance um, here who has a home like that. And I don't even know how it's physically possible. Um, this is something even before having kids, I would see in lifestyle articles talking like discussions about how children never actually want the wooden toys, which I have not found to be true. Sometimes they do. But um, the idea of that your house has only sort of natural fibers, like there are some children in the neighborhood here whose whose parents only dress them in natural fibers, like where it, it always looks like they're in some kind of magazine shoot. And yeah, I guess it's different from the sort of like polyester neon mismatched that perhaps might be in my household. I, I get it. I think that's definitely true. Um, and I think that the mess that we have is more a product of a society where we have plenty um, and that that's an indication of like where things are. And Marie Kondo seems to be pushing back against that, but also doing it in a way that um, is still capitalist. To sort Ooh, of like, so this is we can afford yeah. to throw out all these things. And I mm -hmm. always find that fascinating that like, instead yes. of saying stop buying as much, which is yet another, you know, piece because there's a whole uh, industry around minimalist and minimalist buying. And because it's not about buying less, it's just about buying better and always buying right. better and better and better. So right. it's not own a hundred things, it's own one thing, but have it cost as much as those hundred things. It's just, just oh, as sure. capitalist. So that's a different discussion. Um, but I think that 
we have never been as Jews so thing or we, we were always thing oriented. We always have Judaica, but like you had one prized menorah in the house instead of every year your kid comes home with another craft. And then for a bat mitzvah, you get six menorahs. So all of a sudden there's 18 menorahs in the house, right? And then like you're wondering what to do with this, right? So we, we need to take the step back in that way. That's the way I, I think about it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the the class and capitalist or whatever aspects of this are fascinating and could be, yeah, their own show. I mean, minimalism is a way of sort of signaling that you have so much that you can just throw things out because if it turns out you did actually need it, you can go out and buy it again, right? So that's, um, if you think you can't afford to do that, then you're keeping everything, right? And that's not that somebody has so much stuff in their house because they're rich, but sort of the opposite. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, for sure. That's if you that's think a, every, yeah, that's a mentality that that is very Jewish, and that like I knew people growing up who would save every scrap of food and save every little bit right. because you didn't know where the next one was coming from. If you were a depression exactly. child, right, or a child of you exactly. know, the Holocaust, so, and, like yeah. that's 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 the anti Marie Kondo. You hold on to everything because you never know when exactly. you might need it. Um, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's complicated. I think having a lot can be a sign of having of being rich or of being poor. Having not very much in your house can be a sign of being rich or being poor. Like I think these things, it, it's context, right? So, so this this is a well. This is there's a perfect segue there into what you just elided was that like we hold on to things in case you might need them, which goes right into the books, right? Yes. Yes. So um, I hate to be so much tooting my own horn, but I'm gonna toot again my own horn which is i wrote another article which was at the end of um last week before all of this stuff happened about marie kondo and i must have known you know much like judaism knew that pigs would be unhealthy or whatever um i knew last week that marie kondo would be in the news this week because i wrote an <laughs> about something from the guardian um where rhiannon uh, lucy coslett uh wrote about that she has decided um not to be all precious about keeping her old books and got rid of a whole lot of them. And that people have strong feelings about, just like whether you ever get rid of books. But she took it further and said that it's not just that she's getting rid of many of her old books, but she's, first of all, bringing them to the recycling, not just donating them, which that part I was like, oh, oh, a travesty. Yes. There I was like <laughs> horrified. I was like, can't you just you know, put them somewhere, a little free library, stoop, whatever free stuff on facebook the local library whatever you want to anyway there are so many ways you can get rid of a book that is not the blue bin but also um she was getting rid she said she's getting rid of these books because um she here i'm quoting her article um the big book purge began when I decided to go through the shelves and discard any book I was vaguely embarrassed to have in the house for reasons of quality subject matter politics or author and then she has in parentheses look at your shelves and you probably have your own equivalents so yeah that's what she wrote and i wrote about this yeah for the cjn website that seemed um kind of incredible to me that you would go through your shelves and take out not the books that are just not sparking joy for you anymore but that like you're worried what that somebody's going to come into your house and think you agree with every single thing written in them and endorse the character of the author of all like something about that oh it just seems so there are two things right there's the getting rid of books in general and then there's the um 
getting rid of books for that reason. Avi, what do you think so, of all so this? What's, oh my God. So I have, I have thought about this long and hard. I have a very well uh, developed and defined, not very well developed. No, it's, it's, it's thought out. Definitely. Um, process when it comes to buying and holding on to books. Okay. And I'm mm-hmm. the son of a librarian. Um, so some of it is inherited from that and, uh, in a negative way sometimes, right? My dad was always like self fiction. You don't need to hold on to fiction, right? Cause you're just going to read it and move on. And I'm like, clearly you're not rereading literature on a regular basis, but that's, that's you, but that's fine. And I don't have a lot of fiction as a result of that because I often don't reread it. So, um, my principle is I'll buy anything and I'll hold on to anything if I think I might need it for a class or a program or research or an article in the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's and a work thing for you. It's an ideas. I love this. ideas. I care about mm-hmm. ideas. I deal in ideas um, mm-hmm. and I teach and I like to know that they are there and having my own personal library um, is always there and always available is a beautiful thing. Um, there are definitely times when I go through and I say, you know what, I thought I might have needed this, but I don't think I'm ever going to need this and I will get rid of it. But only if I think that it's not going to serve an interest of mine at some point in the medium future, I'm not even saying the next five years, I'm saying honestly the next 20 years. And there, mm-hmm. there's definitely been book purges because there's only a finite amount of space. Um, but, but other than that, um, I have, I had somebody come to my house for Shabbat this week and he was browsing through, uh, our bookshops. It was not Bobby Hall because Bobby Hall has passed. Um, but <laughs> the, um, he said, I asked him, what did he, th- what was he thinking about the library? And he said, well, the breadth was really amazing that there were books on cocktails mm-hmm. and cooking and philosophy and religion mm-hmm. and culture and media and Israel, like uh, whatever. Anyways. Mm-hmm. So that's like a point of pride. And there's actually, I don't know if you know about this when you were writing, um, there's a word, um, in Japanese also brings it back to the Marie Kondo, right? Called Sundoku. Have you heard of this word? Yes. It comes up in every article in this. All these articles. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think mm-hmm. that that's not a, I think that's a fundamentally Jewish thing, but Umberto Eco talks about it a lot because he had a legendary library. And he said that the reason why you have a huge library is to show that you don't necessarily know everything, but mm-hmm. you, you know, this is saying, I want to know about this. I don't have time to know about it now, but I'm going to hold mm-hmm. on to it because I care enough about these ideas. And it shows that you care about ideas when you have books, that you more books than you're ever possibly going to read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I feel like I'm more inclined to keeping fiction than nonfiction because, I mean, my husband and I, he more than me even uh, read fiction, but also just this idea that when our children are older, maybe they want to, you know, pick up a novel from the shelves and, you know, this gives them more choice in the matter. I feel like I'm more inclined to get rid of nonfiction because of precisely this thing of having acquired it either through school or work along the way. And just, you know, if it's something that has to do with some class I took in grad school that I that has nothing to do with what I'm thinking about these days, it's harder for me to justify keeping that. Um, and it's the same thing with the finite space. Like the idea of never, ever getting rid of a book is just not plausible in the space we live in. Um, other than that, yeah, I mean, I think, um, the idea though that, so the other thing I was going to say about this is that a lot of the books I've read more recently have been through work and have been galleys that I've gotten, um, from a publisher, you know, to write about. And then they are very much in the area I'm interested in or areas I'm interested in these days, but then I don't have the physical copy. So I feel like my bookshelves often feel a little frozen in time to, um, 
you know, back before a publisher would send yeah, an email. That's a whole whole different discussion about the the digital book uh, shelf that we collect and what we have and uh, how much gets accrued in our iBook, you know, Apple Books and Kindles and all of these various apps oh, that I have. You're more organized than I am for me. I've not. In my I am Gmail not inbox <laughs> and I don't even know. Um, yeah, but I think that there is something very Jewish about the collecting and the holding on to these books. And again, you know, con- counter what that woman spoke about. It's it's about preserving ideas that you don't necessarily agree with, right? It goes yes, back all the really, way to the that Talmud. Was exactly, so that is why I had wanted to talk about this with you specifically, that part, yes. That you preserve minority opinions, you preserve opinions that you disagree with, and you read them, um, A, because it sharpens sometimes your opinions. It reminds you sometimes you are wrong and you have to go back to these ideas and figure out where they're where they're at. Um, but it shows that you're not just reading in a siloed sort of way. I fundamentally disagree so often with Ruth Weiss, but I own her books um, mm-hmm. because it's important to to know what she says and to you know to have that there. I, I pulled off a, I pulled out a book of hers recently. It was the Modern Jewish Canon, and going again back to Ashkenormativity, right? She she has like one sentence in the introduction about how yes, there is Sephardic literature out there, and then the rest of like the book, and it's called the Modern Jewish Canon, is all about like Ashkenazi writers and modern Israeli writers. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? But it's an important book, so I'm going to hold on to it. Um, you're That's, not just going to put it out with the recycling? I am absolutely not. I remember I seeing my dad um, when he would get all the books of donation, the, the boxes of, of donations of books for the library. And some of them he was just throwing out. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, Reader's Digest condensed books are for the garbage. Nobody wants to even buy them. Nobody wants them for 10 cents. We throw those out. <laughs> so some books you do recycle and throw out, but there are definitely books for which we um, uh, we have to pass it along to somebody else. So yes, messiness, especially when it comes to books, is very, very Jewish. Yes. And I'm going to just, you know, speaking as the Pope of Judaism here, I'm going to say it's not very Jewish to put all, to put books in the recycling because you don't agree with the author. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> now time the show for our Nachas of the Week. Phoebe, what is your Nachas this week? I'm going to return to the Good old topic of used clothes, because I just ordered from Poshmark for the first time. I had never heard of it. And then um, I, whenever it's a new website, I, new to me, I should say, I always wonder, is this even real? Is this a scam? But I had been looking for years for this type of Betsy Johnson crushed velvet dress that was similar to what I had probably in middle school. Um, and then I'd sort of forgotten about it. And then I was watching an old Britcom and one of the characters was wearing something that was that reminded me of it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. And it was on Poshmark. So I took a gamble. I thought, you know, it's not much money. Either the dress will show up or nothing will show up or something terrible will show up. And it was the dress. It was the exact perfect dress. So um, it smelled a bit of I don't know what, some kind of air freshener, maybe, but I have washed it and now now it's good to go. So I recommend ordering random old clothing on the internet if it's something you've been looking for for years. Um, you, you just might get lucky. I don't think we planned this. I know for a fact we didn't plan this, um, but I have another um, anti-Marie Kondo, anti-original Marie Kondo, um, and goes right into what we were just talking about the same way that you just did. Um, <laughs> I am going to endorse uh, for the next two weeks, the uh, Princeton University Press has their annual online book sale. Right. right. Um, And they have so much great um, 
uh, reading, uh, great ideas, uh, so much Judaica. I have already at least a dozen. It's 75% off, like this huge selection of books. And every year I go and I take like so much Judaica from them and, uh, I, they gladly give it to me. Um, there's like a whole series they have in the lives of great religious books. There's a biography of the Pesach Haggadah. There's a biography of the book of Job. There's a biography of the Talmud. There's so many of like little things like that. There's some Robert Alter out there. There's uh, the new book on hidden heretics, right? On those secret lives of Hasidim that are not uh, Hasidic anymore, but they are Hasidic externally. Um, great. I just, you know, go buy more books, right? Go to the Princeton University Press sale and buy more books. And um, and they ship to Canada? Uh, yes, they do. And it's not that much more expensive. It's like okay, an extra good five, to know. 10 bucks. Always, and, always good to know. You know, books at five, six bucks that are new. And uh, it's like the Poshmark of books, but it's new and it's wonderful. I feel like that we have to come up with like Tsundokish, right? Like to have a Jewish version of Tsundoku, which by the way, we didn't define. It's the phenomenon oh, right. of acquiring reading materials, but letting them pile up in one's home without reading them. Um, right, right, right. So Tsundokish, right? That's it's a Jewish vibe and a Jewish idea. That is my endorsement for the week. Go find Sounds very good. I will start checking that out um, right when we stop recording. I want to see what they've got. Excellent. Phoebe, thanks for the conversation. It's been yet another most enlightening week. <laughs> thanks, Avi. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending February 4th. Shabbat Parshat B'Shalach, Shabbat Shira. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. Our executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. Thank you for joining Bonjour High.